You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 11. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures mate for life. But isn't that, like, cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast. Dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. Hey guys, today we're going to be talking to Sunny Megatron and Ken. We're going to be talking about some of the heaviest, edgiest scenes that we do as kinksters. We're going to be talking about consensual non-consent, interrogations, and abductions, all very closely related, you know, but some subtle differences between the three. And we are covering a lot in this episode. We're going to talk about negotiating a scene. We're going to talk about tools and strategies specifically that you can use to help make sure that everybody's consent is respected and everybody's getting what they want out of the scene and you're creating awesome experiences. We're going to talk about mind fucking. We're going to talk about how to pace your scenes so that you don't break your toys and they end too soon. We're going to talk about aftercare and check-ins and how important aftercare is for both the bottom and the top. Uh, And we got a lot more in here too. We're going to have a lot of specific examples of scenes and tactics and all kinds of other stuff that we cover. Thanks for joining us. Let's get to the interview. It's going to be awesome. All right. So today we're talking to uh, Sunny Megatron and Ken. Um, Superheroes of Sex Ed married couple Sunny Megatron and Ken are partners in every sense of the word. In addition to co-producing Showtime's Sex with Sunny Megatron, they initially gained recognition writing and teaching about everyone's favorite subject, sex. In their sellout workshops, their unique brand of edutainment plus combined 25 years of sexuality teaching experience put students at ease. Their latest endeavor is their podcast called American Sex, which is available on most major podcasting platforms, and we're totally going to include a link to in the notes. On a more personal note, this dynamic duo are married, parents, occasionally ethically non-monogamous, and lifestyle BDSM enthusiasts. Is there anything you guys would like to fill in there that we missed? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, it's actually, I think we need to update the time that we've been sex educators at this point because I alone have been a sex educator for 22 years at this point. And, Sonny, you're going on. Well, I mean, it it would sound weird like a combined (laughs) 29.34. Okay. 30 years. Wow. Are we that old? Yeah. I I started teaching my first kink class in the womb. (laughs) No. Oh, we're funny, I think. I mean, yeah, I think yeah. I think we we're funny. funny. I don't know if we we're are. But. I just heard, uh, I was listening to a YouTube video on the way home talking about how Hillary Clinton ran for president of her mother's womb <laughs> as her first, uh, <laughs> was her first political <laughs> race. Okay. Well, Cassie, would you like to introduce the topic a little bit? All right. So, um, Sunny and Ken teach a lot. Um, actually, what kind of got me wanting to get them on the show to talk about this topic was we actually went to one of their interrogation classes, um, which was fantastic and really awesome. And what we're going to talk about is heavy scenes like consensual non-consent and such, ki- interrogations, kidnappings, how to sort of do those scenes, how to set them up, 
and how to do them safely and what to expect both during and after those scenes. Um, because I think a lot of times when we're all really excited about those things, we're like, yay, we're going to do this like consensual non-consent scene and we're going to, you know, bag somebody up and do all these wild things. We don't really think about all the stuff that is really important on the front end and also on the back end, no pun intended there, as far as doing these kind of scenes. Yeah. So, and I, I actually think this is great because we get to talk about one of our favorite topics. And, uh, and we're just coming off of camp, I guess not just coming off of it at this point, we actually did a bunch of these kind of scenes and I'm sure you guys, uh, got involved in some stuff too. So this is a great topic. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Would you guys like to start off with talking about why someone might want to take part in this kind of scene? Yeah. Um, I think that before we, we dive in deep, we need to kind of step back and give, I don't know, a top line perspective as why anybody would want to engage in any type of scene, whether it's a really heavy BDSM scene or whether it's just more of your average uh, kink scene. So one of the analogies that we use is a roller coaster analogy to explain why people engage in BDSM. So let's say I, I am a dominant, which is true. I'm not pretending. I'm a dominant. And it is my job when I'm constructing a scene for my submissive to pretend I am the engineer of a roller coaster, okay? And this roller coaster ride is the scene that we're going to do. So before I design this roller coaster, I sit with them and I say, well, you know, what kind of roller coaster rides do you like? Do you like corkscrew turns? Do you like dark tunnels? So that represents our negotiation. So once I get all the details of what they like, it's my job to sit back and design this roller coaster. But the object is to not put it together in a way where they've expected. I'm including all of the things that they've approved. However, I might add some surprise turns in there, or put it together in a way that surprises them. I want them to be excited about it. Um, and I always adhere to their constraints. So this roller coaster could be physical. It could be, it very much is going to be emotional. It's the highs and lows and the ups and downs. And if you think about just normal everyday life, we like to ride real roller coasters. We like to go to scary movies because we get that adrenaline rush, right? When you're on the roller coaster and you're about to go down the hill and the thought goes through your mind like, oh, crap, I don't want to go, I, oh, my stomach's going to fly out of my mouth. This is going to be awful. But you do it. And then you're like, hey, let's get in line again, right? That's the point. So if we look at it as a roller coaster ride, that gives us a good framework for where we want to go when we get a little bit heavier. Um, when we're looking at the reasons why people want to do this, the reasons are individual. Uh, you know, as many people there are, there's reasons. It could be, you know, that roller coaster analogy. They want those physical sensations of the adrenaline rush and the endorphin rush. There's been a lot of scientific studies on kink. There's a, a team at, at uh, Northern Illinois University, Brad Sangren, and they do a lot of great research on BDSM that it creates, you know, bonding between couples, that it gives us a high, almost like runner's high, marathon runners or people who do yoga and meditate. This could be that. It could be people want to work out some psychological stuff. They want to relive traumatic events in their lives because it's therapeutic mentally. It could... Maybe it's satis they have a specific fetish that they want to satisfy, or maybe it could foster personal growth. Uh, and I'd like to add something to that. A lot of people just like to kind of go back to the feeling of cops and robbers with fucking. 
So it's like very, very primal, and it goes back to this whole theory about play and why people get involved with it. And we actually learn so much about this just by doing like large parties and scenes. One of the uh, more interesting things that was a huge learning experience for us was we rented out a restaurant. And what we did was we filled all of the people at the tables in the restaurant uh, and they were they were the submissives. And then the people that came in to abduct them were basically terrorists. We had so many submissives that wanted to be abducted that they actually outnumbered the tops two to one. And we had injuries on, like almost all the tops had some kind of injury in some way, shape, or form. And we barely won. I would say the majority of submissives actually enjoy getting abducted or having some kind of fetish that's similar to that where they, you know, get challenged. They get physically hogtied and like put down on the ground, get bondaged up, you know, as long as somebody is into bondage and they're into that, but it's a very, very super common fetish. Now, one of the other great ideas that we had along these lines where we have clothing codes. So if somebody wore black clothing on every part of their body, including panties and bras, that meant that it was safe to tear that item of clothing off. It was a, if it was a piece of white clothing, you do not touch it. And you could even be there just as a spectator if you wanted to as well, and you would wear red clothing. So when you're saying that you think that most submissives uh, have that kind of fantasy, enjoy that kind of thing, are you talking specifically about like consensual non-consent type of scenes? Yeah, I would I would say it falls into that category of consensual non-consent um, because they want to resist. It's the same thing that like you get a lot of people that like to do brat play or resisted play of some way, shape, or form. Um so it's not like, a, you know, a stereotypical scene where you get, you know, you, when you go to a dungeon and somebody has impact play and you're, there's not really a role playing scenario set up around it. And I think that what's the consensual non-consent part is that is the resistance in that you, you need to use safe words in an instance like this. Now, I actually don't advocate the use of safe words all the time in my normal play because normally nine out of ten times I don't do resisted play. Right. What I mean by that is like if somebody says stop, I fucking stop. If they say go to the left, I go to the left. If they say maybe try that a little bit softer, I do that so that they don't need to say red, yellow, and green. But if they say Einstein, rutabaga, turnip, then I also stop and reevaluate because that might be a safe word that they came up with and they didn't know what else to say. Um, so when you have a scene like this, if you don't use safe words, you need to use safe words just so that people can do that. I, I also want to add something when it comes to safe words, when you are in a very intense consensual non-consent scene, I hear a lot of people when they you know teach BDSM or talk about BDSM, they say, the responsibility to end the scene or the control of the scene is completely in the submissive's hands because they're the ones who specify, you know, the, the negotiation details and they're the ones who have the safe word. However, when you're doing a heavy scene and sometimes it's even when you're doing a scene you don't think is going to be heavy, you've tripped some sort of emotional trigger. Um, you, and and just the, from the medical side of things, people can go into physical shock and they're, they're completely unable to do that. So it's the responsibility of the top. Right. To take over right. In that case. So, you know, just because the submissive hasn't called a safe word, maybe they have a weird far off look in their eye. Your, your intuition is telling you something's not right here, even though they're not safe wording. So in the group situation, we actually had instances where we put, you know, there was a, a gr agreed group safe word that everyone used the same safe word. They were actually taped to the wall. So if people mentally went to a place where they couldn't even remember the safe word, that might be a reminder, but also people, the tops or 
dominance, whatever you want to call yourself, need to know that they need to check in and take some responsibility for that as well. It's on everybody's shoulders. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody needs to do that. Um, well, I think that there's I think that there's some very different considerations as well when you're talking about playing in a, a, a large group type situation like that than oh, for sure. you know, a, a more uh I guess smaller consensual non-consent scene with maybe only a few participants involved. Right. Yeah, and I think there's also a, a very big difference between having like one or two bottoms and a small group of people, you know, topping them versus many, many bottoms too. Um, (laughs) yeah. And one of the other side effects of that is that submissives tend not to use safe words if they get into groups above five, not that that's an exact number or something like that, but like the, the the larger the number is, the less likely they are to want to call safe words because they don't want to look like a wimp. Yeah. I think that's, I think, well, I think, I think you run into that the minute you get out of the house to a certain extent, you know what I mean? Like, especially if you're doing scenes, I think you see that equally as much in scenes that kind of turn into spectacles or showcases. Like they don't even need to have a lot of submissives, but like, you know, like we'll, we'll get tapped to do scenes that are like, is supposed to be like exhibitions somewhere. You know what I mean? And it, it, it turns into a show. And I think there can be a lot of pressure on the bottom in that situation too. Right. Right. And you know, there is a big difference between, performative BDSM that you're doing for an audience and you're doing for the people watching and then BDSM that you're doing for just the people involved in the scene. And I think that's something that people need to think about before they go into their scene and how they may react differently to those different types of scenarios. And when it comes to big or big or heavy scenes, even if it's amongst two people, we often advocate don't do these scenes alone. If you're doing something, you know, that that is considered edge play or considered really heavy, it pays to have that extra pair of eyes, that extra pair of ears, um, you know, other people that may maybe aren't involved in your scene, but you can consult, that you can have watch on because these things are dangerous and things could go wrong. So if you're alone at home, you you don't have that extra safety net. And also as a longtime player, one of the things that I would highly recommend is just don't use the DM that's at that local dungeon because there's times when that person could be brand new at their job. Have somebody that you know is either a medically trained professional or somebody that is familiar, overly familiar with the type of play that you're doing. So it's like, you know, if you're, if you're having fire involved with it, if you're doing abduction, you want to have somebody that knows how to respond to any sort of accident that you can. And it's not just a consent violation that there may be a you know, a physical issue because people can be a dungeon master without knowing anything about medical stuff. They know when to call a medic, but they don't know anything about being a medic necessarily. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. And I I think even beyond that, it's a good idea to have like someone, if you're going to be doing a very extreme scene that knows you really well there, um, Mm -hmm. because that's somebody who can gauge you and that sort of thing. So you guys were kind of talking about the the whole roller coaster thing, which I think is really cool. Um, but how do you how do you make sure that like at the end of that roller coaster, the submissive is kind of getting what they were expecting? Well, there there's a lot of things. You know, when it when it comes to scenes like this, we don't consider these type of scenes to be suitable for pickup play. So pickup play means I'm at a party, I meet someone who's a relative stranger, and then we quickly negotiate a scene and we engage. When you're doing scenes like this, you need to do them with someone you know well. Someone you haven't just had one quick 10-minute 
negotiation conversation with, but perhaps have negotiated over a series of conversations, maybe over days, weeks, even months, or the history of your relationship together, whatever that might be. I, I completely agree with you on that. Although I would ask how then that works out in like a group situation that you're talking about. Um, that, that's one of the reasons why we use things like our rough BS system and a yes, no, maybe list. Both of those things uh, sort of help us because both are ways to evaluate someone to find out how much they like a thing so that we can try to anticipate as much as possible. Now, you can never guarantee that somebody is going to get what they expected out of a situation. For The one thing that I know for all these years through both being involved in BDSM and playing Dungeons and Dragons as a dungeon master is that you can never know what people are going to do. Right. So you and have no sometimes you might just roll a one. Like so, yep, Exactly. You know. Sometimes you might just might be having a <laughs> shitty day and no matter what happens, you might have every single thing that you have requested and you're just having a lousy time because you got in an argument with your significant other or your kid was an asshole in like threw a fork at a teacher that day or, the, or, or your dog took a dump on your shoes. Like you just never know what's going to activate something in someone, you know, any more than you can know about what activates PTSD or a trigger. Sometimes it's a smell. Sometimes it's a sound. Sometimes it's a repeated action. So uh, the the easiest way to do it, though, is just to be as prepared as possible. Um, and I don't use my normal rule of safety third. I use safety first in this instance. That was a joke, guys. Um <laughs> Uh, and then we, we, we do a yes, no, maybe list. Now, if you're not familiar with it, a yes, no, maybe list is where we go through all these different acts that could be taking place during, say, an interrogation scene. And you say, do you like being having your clothes ripped off? Do you want to have a bag over your head? Do you want to be choked? Do you not want to have parts of your body touched? Um, and if so, what are those parts of the body? And then and you keep asking more and more and more questions until you find out exactly what the person wants and you got sort of a general idea. And you have to go through that with every single person involved in the scene, whether they're a top or a bottom. Now the – oh, and I'll, I'll talk about rough BS, I guess, in a little bit here. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Well, yeah, it's, it's – and I think that the – I think that the amount of um, – I think the way you, you kind of nailed it in that the way that you have to negotiate these scenes is kind of directly related to how well you know the person. So like we, I, I really personally prefer, um, and it depends a lot on the person, but I prefer a lot to negotiate limits and work a lot around those, but it really depends on the exact scene that you're doing and how well you know the person, because, you know, like in, in a situation where you don't know anything they like at all. Um, so we, we did a scene at DO that was very, with somebody we hadn't played with before. And it was actually a, a consensual, not like, very heavy consensual nonsense. It was hot. It was. <laughs> it was. It was also very hot. It was. Uh, yeah, we we actually we had a, a ton of fun with it. But she had a very, very detailed list. It was actually uh, Dio's like abduction. They have the whole like abduction for. Oh them. yeah, yeah, yeah. The friendly abduction service. Yeah, so we wound up. It was so she had done that, but then her partners decided that they wanted us to kind of coordinate it. So they gave us that sheet that she had done. And it was very, very, very detailed and exactly what she was looking for. It was very specific. It was, it was very. very it was the most specific scene I've ever tried to Co coordinate on that yeah. level. Yeah. And, that, you know, that's so hard because I've had scenes like that where, you know, I'm playing with someone I don't know really well and then they give me this 
incredibly detailed list of stuff and it's my memory is only so big and if I don't know you very well I'm not going to remember those things from experience or you know it's not going to be imprinted in my brain the same way so I almost feel like I have to stop and go wait let me check my sheet time out everyone <laughs> like, I want to make sure that face slapping's okay before I do it because I can't remember um, so that can get a little frustrating one thing I do want to add though is you know we talked about knowing who you're playing with very well, yada, yada, yada. And of course, that's very important. But another thing that we fail to look at is knowing ourselves very well. I don't want to play with a submissive that does not display that they are very self-aware, that they are very emotionally competent and literate, that they can communicate their feelings and desires in a healthy, clear way. If I don't see those things displayed from the person I potentially am going to play with, I will not play with them. Because if you are not self-aware to understand yourself, you can't communicate that to other people and you can't understand other people either. Oh yeah. It goes to what you're, you know, the importance of partner selection. And you really, as a general rule, you know, I, we don't ever do this type of play with people. We don't, we, it's a good way to wind up in a very bad situation for everybody involved. Right. Yeah. Just as a ballpark, I think everybody that we've done interrogation scenes with, I think I knew them for at least a year before and they were either play partners or somebody that I had seen play 20 or 30 times. Mm-hmm. I am very curious about this idea, you know, that you that you guys think that uh, or the opinion that most most submissives are kind of have some level. And I, I think the level varies between everybody, but of consensual non-consent. And I think that's interesting. So I because I switch and that's like some of my favorite consensual non-consent is some of my favorite play both on the top and the bottom. But I guess I never really, even though pretty much everybody we've played with has has wanted to do consensual non-consent at some point or another. I guess I've never really stopped and, and thought to generalize it. I think it kind of goes into that whole perspective. And I'm I'm just a top here, so I'm probably talking out my ass. Um <laughs> I don't bottom at all. But at least from what I've observed with like our play partners and even our like relationship partners who have dabbled in it is that it's this it's the desire to kind of give full submission. And when I say give, I'm not saying like give up because there's a big difference between like, I am giving you my submission and you took my fucking submission. And I think- And the uh, second one is hotter. Yes. And I I think that the second one, it, it drives this desire of wanting, from the bottom's perspective, of wanting to be taken. And I guess for me as a top, I like it because I'm able to have this feeling of really actually being in control within, you know, boundaries and within consent, I can do whatever I want to you within those boundaries. But there is that full power there on either end. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I think, too, generally, I, I don't like to get caught up in labels. Uh, you'll see Ken and I both use the term top and dominant or bottom and submissive pretty much interchangeably. But if we look at the traditional definitions, it, it you know, to me, it's a different... It's a difference between, um, uh, you know, when you're a submissive, are you really enjoying the aspect of bottoming, which is just being the receiver of certain sensations, or is it actual submission that you want? And I think a lot of people that maybe aren't into the heavy play or into into more of the sensual sensation play, they might be more just 
bottoms as opposed to true submissives, if that makes sense. No, I think it, I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, now, do you guys, going on this whole topic, do you guys find, I'm just curious, that since you've kind of gotten known to do this kind of play, that people don't ask you to do anything else? Hmm. No, they actually ask us to do quite a few things. It just depends. We I probably have more requests to do abduction interrogations, but there's... But what I actually do more of is just sort of a BDSM 101 kind of basic sampler for people that are new because I love giving people new experiences. So it's just, you know, a little bit of sensation play, a little bit of Wartenberg pinwheel, blindfolds, hands all over the body, uh, flogging, maybe a single tail. Because like, not I mean, although there's, you know, a few people that use them, a lot of beginners have no idea what that feels like. So I get a lot of those types of requests. Um, but I think that once they take a look, you know, and match up with what's on my FetLife profile, that helps a lot. Like all of those different categories on FetLife help me a ton to see if I'm even compatible with a person. And I look at it exclusively, uh, especially when I use that in conjunction with a yes, no, maybe list, you know, and it's, you know, the submission stuff like that really, there's, there's really, uh, two types. You've got physical submission and psychological submission. So somebody who is a long-term, you know, full-time DS relationship with me, uh, that's more of a psychological submission where they are submitting to me over a period of time under certain circumstances, um, as opposed to physical submission, which is basically I'm physically overpowering you. Right. And and I think for me, I, I, I like both. Um, but when it comes down to it, what, you know, what's in my heart, what's in my passion is psychological domination. And, you know, not that I don't like doing the physical, but it's, you know, people are like, well, do you like paddling or flogging better? And it's like, those are just my tools. And I can use whatever tools I feel like using in that moment. And that doesn't matter to me as much. What matters to me is I want to get like weasel my way inside your head, like force my way, take your submission, weasel my way inside your head and fuck you up, but in a good way, in a way that you like, that you're going to walk away with being happy about, if that makes sense. I think the reason why Rigel brought that up was uh, because we've noticed, especially amongst our friends and people who we are um, friendly with, now that we have kind of gotten known amongst our friends and our local community as being like the people that abduct people um, and and kidnap people and do that kind of thing, that's what we're often asked to do. It's like, we're like, we just want to do like a soft, nice play scene with you. Um, we have in particular, our one friend, A, I'll just call her A, who uh, we're always like, oh, let's do a nice scene with. And she's like, no, do that thing you did where you dunked my head in water and drowned me. And we're like, no, we just want to make out with you. Like, we just want to have like some nice cuddle, sweet time with you. And all you want me to do is wreck you. Okay, sounds good. Let's go. Um, <laughs> that is exactly it. why I was asking that question. <laughs> but yeah, that's I, I kind of figured that's why you were asking. One of, one of the big things is that you'll find that there's variation once you start doing enough of these sort of scenes you'll come to a realization that no matter what a person wants, no matter what they put on their yes, no, maybe list or tell you that they want, people change over time and they change from day to day. Now, I'm not just talking like suddenly becoming a switch or a top or a bottom. Uh, I'm talking more along the lines of today, I want to resist everything that you have that you that you can throw at me and I want you to break me. Um, there's other days where you're like, I just want to give up. 
I just want to give up and it's not going to take much to do it. So there's like this, you know, and everybody can do that. So it's sort of like when you're having sex, there are times when you're just having normal, regular vanilla sex. We teach this in our blowjob class. There are times when sometimes you just want the blowjob as the appetizer for the sex. And sometimes you want it to be the main course. And it's the same thing with abduction scenes. Sometimes it's the appetizer. Sometimes it's the main course. And it just depends on what somebody feels day to day. So one of the things that you can do kind of going forward is express your wants and needs so that you can sort of come to a happy medium with that. Does that make sense? I don't really think it's really me needing to come to a happy medium because I really do enjoy the harder <laughs> scenes and um, I don't, I don't get it a lot um, necessarily from I mean, I, I do with, with Rigel, but my other partner, primary partner, is she likes to play a little bit more softer. Um, so for me, if a pretty's like, I want you to wreck me, I'm like, that sounds good too. Um, so it's not really an issue of, of me, you know, not getting those needs met. So. so are you happy with just everything that she wants? Say that again? Oh, I was just curious. Are you happy with everything that she wants? Like, uh, like, are you very service oriented in that way that you're a service top and you like, you want to do whatever is going to make her happy, whether it's fucking her up or not fucking her up? No, not really. Um, She's about as far from a service. Yeah, top. I'm, I'm pretty selfish top. All right. So you're just the opposite. <laughs> I'm pretty selfish top. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's funny. I've, I've actually just kind of gotten to a point in my life that I am accepting of exactly what I am. I am a very physically selfish, sadistic top. And I'm happy with that. Like, and it took me a really long time to be like, you know, I'm really selfish about what I want in scenes. And I'm not regretful of being selfish. And I'm not saying that as I don't care about the person and I'm not trying to make sure that we're figuring out a place that's a happy medium. But I am perfectly happy making sure I get my needs taken care of. Um, yeah, you should be self-aware. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're doing. Yeah, you're exactly. It's, it's not being greedy. <laughs> and and also, you know, Ken and I um, did a class. It's been a while since we taught it about um, inverse power exchange and how, you know, how it's a dirty word to be topping from the bottom or to be a service top. And the way I look at it, you know, because people, you hear service top and people are like, no, service top, it's a bad thing. And really, it's like, if I'm doing a scene, even if I'm being selfish and I'm making, which means I am getting what I want out of the scene, whatever that is, whether it's something sexual, whether it's something mentally sadistic, I am getting what I want. But of course, I'm doing it while I'm still adhering to the submissive's boundaries. And I am, of course, also looking out that in the end, they're not going to be like, that was shitty and I had a miserable time and not in a good way. So really, when we're topping, aren't we always kind of service topping? No. (laughs) I don't think so. That's the way I look at it. No. No, that's the way I look at it. Not at all. That's why it's an inverse power exchange. (laughs) I I think that there is... I think the general idea behind service topping is sort of doing it just for the other person. Like it's more about their needs. And I think, honestly, I think most of it, it's it's kind of like that whole bell curve thing. You know, like people like to talk about things in black and white. And really, I think the best scenes are somewhere in the middle, whether you fall more on the like, I'm going to take whatever the hell I want from you versus the, I'm going to do what makes you feel really happy. Um, the idea of, of the scene in general is for both people to walk away getting what they need and want out of it. Uh, it's, it's probably more the way that you're viewing it yourself 
And yeah, for me, I, I very yeah. much, and maybe because I'm kind of, even though I'm sadistic and mean and I want you to cry and beg and be miserable, I always, maybe it's the mom in me. Like it, I it always want to do it in a way that it, it, the, you know, that you love that you were so miserable. Like in the end, you're going to be like, that was so great. You made me cry so much, but I want to get mine too. So, you know, I know what, what, like, like exactly what you're thinking right now. And I think that it comes down to like, you don't really objectify people and I do. So I can be a <laughs> person that objectifies somebody. I'll just use them as a cum dumpster and walk away where you are more concerned with feelings and with what's going on afterwards. And I think organically people gravitate towards, you know, Cassie being, you know, a sadistic bastard towards you being a service top or towards me being somebody who objectifies somebody. Right. And okay. I think that it goes that way. I think the thing to remember too is that uh, you know, for somebody who does who does bottom, you know, as much as I top, um, that whole uh so, sometimes what you want can be not getting what you want out of the scene, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? So or it can be being objectified, or it can be, you know, somebody being very sexually selfish with you and and you know, not worrying about what you want. I mean, that can be part of it. That can be part of what you want as the bottom. So you like when I'm like, I love you, baby, but right now you're just a tool. Yeah, it works great. <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? Um, so how – let's let's talk a little bit about um, – uh, so we, we talked quite a bit about, I think, some of the coordination of the group stuff earlier, which is really cool. But – most people, I think, are going to find themselves doing uh, doing consensual non consent scenes in, in much smaller Scale. groups than yeah, like you know two you know like a top and a bottom or maybe a bottom and a couple tops. Um, so I'd be interested in talking about some tips to kind of like plan those scenes and 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 negotiate those you know in those kind of smaller groups because I do think it's very different doing it that way than with the large group, and I think it's important for people to understand how to kind of negotiate a scene and plan a scene that they're likely to run into. Sure. First and foremost, um, you know, of course, you still do consent negotiation. Uh, you do the yes, no, maybe list to find out what, but it's not as critical to do things like a clothing code. You don't need that for like less than five people because I think everybody can count to five. Yeah, we generally just ask, is it okay to destroy your clothes? Exactly. But what is but what is important that people don't tend to focus on is both physical and psychological health of the person and evaluating them ahead of time. Now, there are simple things that people forget about sometimes, like, do you remember to ask every single person if they have a latex allergy? Do you, you know, ask them if they have neuropathy? Do they have diabetes? Are they currently pregnant? Or do they have a seizure disorder? Do they have high blood pressure or low blood pressure? And these are all things just experientially from both being a medic in the service and through doing extreme scenes that you learn to ask like low blood pressure is one of the things I never thought to ask until we were, you know, totally encased somebody from the waist down and the goddamn near passed out. Yeah. And, you know, we, we actually learned two lessons at the same time there. One, the music in the dungeon was too fucking loud. We couldn't hear them and they were going red, red, red. And then we couldn't hear them until we saw them doing jazz hands along with it. Cause jazz hands is our, what we call a somatic safe word, which is something that like, if you can't hear somebody, you need to be able to see something. And that's, we started using that more and more and more. 
Um, the person didn't pass out, but they almost did. And, you know, and, and then I was like, oh, God, I didn't even think to ask. Do you have low blood pressure? Yes. By the, by, you know, as a matter of fact, I do have and low blood like, pressure. And it was like, oh, damn, we got to start asking people that. So, and I think that was also yeah. the day that we realized that it really hit home that, you know, we're... How old we were? Yeah, because we're, <laughs> we're in our, our mid... You're almost 50. I'm almost 50. I'm 46. And that when you get older, your hearing starts to dull a little bit. And if someone's talking in a room full of music, it blends in with the background noise. And we were like, oh my God, we totally didn't hear her. Yeah, and we weren't being sadistic. We were just <laughs> old and deaf and couldn't hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important when doing negotiations, whether it's for big, big scenes or small scenes, but particularly with big scenes, that when you're going through your negotiations to ask specifically about medical history and triggers, because a lot of times people focus a lot on, well, this is my hard limits and my soft limits, but they forget one of the most important things, which is like your physical injuries or some of your triggers and things like that. Or it may be something they're embarrassed to talk about. Like somebody might not want to admit they have diabetes or like I have a seizure disorder, which by the way, as a, as a sadistic top is one of the most fun things to fuck with people because <laughs> I tell my subs I have a seizure disorder and then I'll get them in full bondage and then I'll fake a seizure if it's not on their hard limit list. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I think we, we generally, when we're teaching negotiation, um, like we, and, and just as a general negotiation for scenes, not even specifically for this type of scenes, but like we always do hard limits and soft limits, but the other things that we always tell people to ask and that we always ask on top of those, because they're things that people tend to forget when they're talking about limits is triggers is health issues. And is also sex. Like we always tend to ask sex separately. Cause it's one of those things that people should talk about in their hard limits and soft limits technically, but realistically people tend to forget that stuff. And they don't mention it. And then you run into uh, you run into things that were limits that weren't mentioned in the limit list that you really should have known about before. Absolutely. Yeah, we we include generally in our limit list, there's a list of, you know, kind of your run of the mill sexual things that you might not even think to talk about, but they're really important. Yeah. Like, are blowjobs OK? Is this something that you don't want sexy time at all? You just want BDSM? Um, you know, do you want, you know, like in. Oftentimes, people are just a little bit nervous, and they forget about the health issues specifically. But after you've talked about the health issues, I, I want to sort of talk about this rough BS system that we have set up. And I want to do this by playing a game with the both of you. And I'm going to evaluate both of you to find out how much, in this case, Cassie, how much you like doing these things. And for Rigel, how much you like these things to be done to you. So pretend you're on the submissive side of your switchiness, if that's cool. Uh, that works for me. Okay. So rough BS is R-O-U-G-H-B-S. And what it stands for is on a scale of one to 10, you want to evaluate how much these things rock. So if something is a 10, that means it's fucking awesome. Do it to me twice. If it's a one, fuck no, never, never, never. Screw you. Go away. No. All right. So starting with the R on a scale of one to 10 and, uh, uh, how much do you like to be restrained or restrain other people? Cassie? 11. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll answer, but is a limit zero? Uh, zero to 10, yeah. I'm saying so essentially a limit would be zero. And one would be, eh, I'll do it, but it really sucks. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, 10. I, I just wanted to know. <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting here like, really? <laughs> You're having to think that hard? Mind That's fucking funny. us in the negotiation phase. That's awesome. Whoa. So the next one, oh, how much do you like to be owned by another person? Or in your case, Cassie, how much do you like to own people? Nine. 
Yeah, I'd say about a nine too, mainly just because I think they can mean different things to different people. Absolutely. And of course, like each of these acronyms prompts then a further conversation as, you know, restraint might be like, hey, I'm really into rope, but I'm not into like chains or metal because it hurts the bones on my wrists or, you know, so. Or you have a nickel allergy. Exactly. Exactly. I'm going to be, I'm going to stop being so jailhouse lawyer though and just let you guys run through the rest and I'm going to answer. So go ahead. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. Be be jailhouse lawyer. It's fine. Like that's, that's what prompts good questions about this stuff. Now the next one is the letter U. How much do you like to use other people or how much do you like to be used by them? Ten. Ten, yeah. (laughs) You guys are perfect for each other. All right, next one. The G, how much do you like to be given away to other people? Or how much, in this case, for you, Cassie, how much do you like to give away your property? Four. Yeah. Uh, Five. Really depend on the circumstances and the scene. And the person I'm giving away to. And the person and the, yeah. (laughs) That changes. I mean, it could be ten with the right person and the right scene. (laughs) Yeah, and, and just keep in mind all of this, like with the given away and the used, it's like negotiated ahead of time. There's consent driven. It's got to be somebody who's a regular play partner. It's not just, I'm going to give you away to that the guy, guy over on the there. Corner. The guy over there on the corner right. who's like slumped against the building drinking a bottle of Mad Dog. Okay, maybe, maybe like a seven for me then. Maybe like a seven for me then. Okay. <laughs> but only if it's guys on the corner that are drinking Mad Dog leaned up against a building. Wait, I thought we meant the other one. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Now, this next one actually prompted us to make an entire class. How much do you like to be humiliated? Three. Eight. <laughs> See, this is where we start getting different. The reason I'm asking, what is humiliation to you? I'm more talking verbal. Um, I'm more talking verbal, mostly when I, when I talk about humiliation in that sense. I'm more talking verbal humiliation. So give me an example of verbal humiliation that you would like. Or not like. Yeah, both, actually. Okay, like, you. so something like, you know, like, like you're a whore. I like that. Like, that works for me, especially if it's during sex. Like, that kind of thing works for me. You're my toy. Yeah, that works for me, too. Um, I guess, like, and I'm, I'm just... I'm just pulling it out from things I know some other people like, but like, oh, you have a really small penis or like, you know, like you're worthless or that kind of thing would not float my boat. Uh-huh. Right. And Cassie, what about you? What is, uh, what does humiliation mean to you? Like what, when you say you have an eight for humiliation, what do you like doing to people? Okay. So I feel like there is like several different categories of humiliation. There is there verbal humiliation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's verbal humiliation, which is calling names, things like that, which I would actually say is a little bit lower than, than an eight if I was just judging that. Um, I mean, I do like calling a lot of names, but I usually try to stay away from things that are, um, I, I don't really like the whole like degrading somebody's like being, I guess. Like I don't mind picking and calling a slut or even stupid. I'll call someone stupid and smack them in the face and tell them they're being dumb and they need to suck my cock. Um, but, uh, I guess for me, humiliation also can be the physical and that's, that's things that I really, really enjoy is like physical humiliation. Like, um, ripping the clothes off of somebody and making them feel like they're they're a slut or keeping their panties on their ankles and telling them that they like it, that sort of stuff. Um, so it's a little bit of the physical and verbal, but sort of the, 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 the physical for me is a lot more powerful, especially the physical, like I know they're sitting there feeling humiliated. Like, oh my gosh, I really shouldn't like this. I'm taking this cock up my ass and it feels so good. And they're telling me it feels good 
but I don't want to make, I don't want it to feel good, that kind of thing. So for me, I really do like humiliation. And what about cuckolding? What do you feel about that? Because that's another form of humiliation. I, it just doesn't really matter to me. I guess I just, I've never really had too much of a... It might be because you're not very male-oriented, probably. Yeah, I'm, I, okay, so on the, on the lesbians, like, lesbian, bisexual, straight spectrum, I'm much more lesbian. Um, I'm technically bisexual, but I, I'm more... Although she's questioning if she's... I, I have been so deeply. Um, but, uh, as, as far as, I guess, cuckolding, it's, it's not really like a, a no, I wouldn't do it. Queening, either one. That's more appealing. <laughs> <laughs> so again, that's that's that would be more along the lines of maybe something you would be into if you're more on the the lesbian side of the spectrum. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I haven't really given a whole lot of thought to it to be honest until this moment. Ooh, new new inspiration, right? <laughs> Um, and I guess uh, overall, um, like sexual restraint and and in, in, in that kind of way is not necessarily. Um, a huge thing for me, I guess, just because for me, I'm like, if you're around, I want you involved, like more people, more fun. So I'm not, I, I'm not opposed to it. I'd be definitely down for doing it, but it's not like at the top of my list of like things that I would be like, hell yeah, I want to do. All right. So the next one, the letter B, how much do you like to beat people or how much do you like to be beaten? 10. How much do you like to be beaten, Rachel? Yeah, this, this, oh, beat specifically. Um, like impact play. Yeah. Oh, six. And how much do you like to serve others? Or in this case, Cassie, how much do you like to have people serve you? Nine. Three, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> See, and the reason why I say nine is because I like that 1% of at least, like, even even people who are, like, in complete service, I still like that 1% brat and pain in the ass, just so I have a reason to be uh, <laughs> vengeful. <laughs> To make the service feel that much more sweet, like, ha-ha. So, as you guys can tell, the humiliation, the H part of it, is one of the most diverse subjects, which is why we had to make an entire class just on humiliation. Because a lot of people think that, um, for example, degradation is something that it's not. Degradation is something we don't actually do in BDSM at all. Like, that's where you are permanently lowering somebody's psyche where you're like, if you were in the military and you screwed up and they ripped off your sergeant stripes and they made you a private, you have loss of status in everybody's eyes. You have lower rate of pay. Everybody knows what happened to you. And it's something that is permanently harmful to the psyche. What most people think of degradation is actually extreme humiliation. And what we do in that class is we sort of break it down to show people what the difference between those things are. And I just want to add in, I, I wouldn't say we never do it. We very rarely do it. But maybe in cases of, you know, people that are the recipients of very extreme financial humiliation or financial blackmail, where you are actually physically taking something from them and changing the status of their lives permanently. Granted, not a lot of people actually play that hard, but there are a few. Oh, there are. Just, yeah. it's, it's very, very rare, though. Let's put mm -hmm. it that way. So do you guys um, do you guys do any kind of like. I'm just curious, like written planning for your, some of your more complicated scenes. This is just something we started doing here recently in this last year. Um, but do you guys do anything similar to that? Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause we actually, um, the, the, the very, uh, most intense scene, uh, that we ever did. And it's not a military, military style interrogations are for pussies. This is something that's a little bit more intense. Right. And there was like 97 levels to the first protocol. Um, and it just, uh, it, it's, it, but so we have everything scripted out 
completely. I from mean, there was a, there end. was an actual like manual we, for we, the we, scene. We had written a manual, yeah. like literally a manual that we wrote for the scene uh, because we did a level one interrogate coercive interrogation, which is the lightest, fluffiest levels of the interrogation um, spectrum. And then on top of that, we checked with the person in advance for weeks ahead of time, and uh, we had three nurses two medics, an ER doctor, two clinical psychologists, and a psychiatrist at this scene to help evaluate the person. And then I personally paid for them to have follow-up appointments with the, the psychological professionals for one week, one month, and one year after the date of the event. And I just want to mention when Ken said the lightest, fluffiest level of the interrogation, <laughs> he means the lightest, fluffiest for like real interrogation. So real interrogations, the, the beginning the beginning might be like, I'm going to start by breaking your bones. So we dumbed <laughs> down. <laughs> we didn't break bones. You guys are really quiet. <laughs> no, we were listening. I've never actually broken anybody's bones in a scene. I just went, well, that's not actually true. But What? Not on purpose. Not, <laughs> not on intentionally. Purpose. <laughs> Accidents, Accidents happen. happen. <laughs> yeah, we've we've just started doing a very short, nothing that involved. We just started doing a very short, like a one-page sheet. I may actually put it in the notes. Um and I'm, I'm trying to remember it, but just like a one page sheet for like some of the more complicated scenes on, you know, the different people who are involved, what equipment we need, um, kind of a general, uh, what was the other thing that's on there? Um, people. You should also script it out if you haven't. I mean, just because when you're going through all these things, um, when you're doing an interrogation, ultimately, whether it's coercive or forced, you're trying to get some information out of this person because there has to be an end goal to the interrogation. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we typically have something, yeah. Okay, so it's not just an abduction, but when you do abduction with interrogation. So you have to have carrots and sticks is the easiest way that I can put it in the script so that you do carrot, then you do stick. So then you do carrot, then you do stick. So it might be, you know, you give the person a cigarette or a drink of water, and then you go through some very intense electric play. Then you back off a little bit, give them another drink of water. Uh, When we did the, the scene... Um, we actually made part of this financial carrots. So and that threw her. She off. did the the submissive did not expect it was like she was expecting psychological right, like physical you're, pain. You're getting tortured and beaten, and then it, she had a code, right? So it's like a four digit code, and if you give us the code, and and it's kind of acts like a secondary safe word because she knows once she gives the code, the scene is over. But she also knows she's trying to resist. That's the whole role play of the scene. So um, it's like, all right. And then, you know, we're beating her. Give us a number. No, no. And then it goes to, oh, would you like a drink of water and a cigarette? If you give us just one number, we'll, you know. And then it's like, hey, here's 200 bucks just for one. And she's like, what? And it really threw her off. <laughs> it you add fucked finance, with her head. You add finances. Go imagine that, <laughs> Rigel, when, if you were, you know, submitting and you were involved in an interrogation scene, if somebody said, just give me, a, give me one number, just one, and I'll give you $1,000 cash. Here it is. And you lay out you know, 10, $100 bills, it really fucks with your head. You did that in the interrogation class we saw at DO last year. It wasn't, it wasn't a thousand dollars, but you guys yeah. did do that. Yeah, it was hilarious. And, and the girl was like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And she needed the cash too. So she was like, I don't know what's going on. She was, and that's the thing is you'd want to do psychological edge play and you want to think outside of the box. Cause everybody that does interrogations, the first thing that they're going to think of is, they're going to be physically beaten until they submit. And that's not how you actually do it to be successful. It has to be 
almost like the in the coercive interrogations, you have to get them to see your point of view and why they should give you the information. And you do that by any means necessary. And oftentimes that completely precludes you from doing extreme physical stuff. Like, yeah, maybe a little bit of beating like the Like I think we did the arm binder clips and, on, the like, and yeah, like in the, and then the tube, the medical tubing that we beat her with. Uh, but it gets more extreme from there. I mean, it's like, cause we do stuff like water bagging, which makes water boarding look like something that only wimps do water bagging is where, and I think we described it. We didn't actually do it in that class cause we didn't get to that level of the protocol, but that's where you take a garbage. And bag. I think camp was out of ice. <laughs> they were out of ice at that time. So what you do is you have a bucket of ice. And like a little bit of water in it, you take a, a heavy duty garbage bag, tie it like a noose around the person. So you're actually covering their head like a hood. And then you're like completely like tying it tightly around their neck, not enough to choke them out, but enough so that the water won't get in. Then you take them, dump them upside down in the bucket of ice water. And what happens is the body has a physical response where it simply wants to escape from that situation because the water starts slowly seeking into the the garbage bag, no matter how tight it is, Mm -hmm. so that they start panicking. And they'll start, if you don't, if you do this for too long, they'll kill themselves because they'll start chewing through the garbage bag and they could choke. So right. you have to And that's in real so life. Like your submissive isn't going to kill themselves. Don't yeah. do what I say. Right. Yeah. Right. Thank so you. I, I was just, I was just about to say, like, don't do this without people who know what they're doing and medics. So. Yeah. Exa- oh yeah. And like and this is the most extreme, intense version of the, the BDSM edge play stuff. In, in touch of flavor audience, I'm not really a, a terrible human being. I feel awful for talking about this. They're like, oh, I guess I did break some bones. Well, oh, we did drown that one bitch. And- <laughs> okay. Uh, we're all we're all awful human beings here. It's okay. For us, we sort of have, as as Rigel said, we um, have sort of that page where we kind of go through, we plan out things, and we sort of because you were talking about scripting, we sort of script kind of the phases of what we're going to be doing loosely, but we do it loosely. And I think that there's also something to be said about doing things a little loosely. So that way you have room for flexibility. And I think it's really important to tell people, especially when they're first doing these things to be flexible. It will um, never go exactly how you plan. Yeah. Like yeah, you're like, like a D and D game. It's like, you know, it's in BDSM. You never know what something's going to happen, which is why when we're actually doing it, re- actual interrogation, we have it scripted so heavily because you don't vary from that. Because if somebody doesn't comply to the level that you're at, it simply bumps it up to the next right. level. It's almost like a game. Like we, you yeah. know, it's like, so, like we're going to play a game first. This is going to happen. And if you don't respond, then we're going to escalate to this. And that's just for that very specific kind of scene. But I agree in, in a, um, a more typical average scene. Yes. Have a, a general idea of beginning, middle and end. Here's kind of how you want it to go. Here are the, the smorgasbord of things you have to choose from, whether they're activities, types of play, impact instruments, whatever it is, and then always include, you know, you're going to have that improvisational aspect that things might go a little differently and you might have to adjust just depending on how the scene goes. The the example I give in our interrogation class is if you're doing a forced interrogation, when you're doing a coerced interrogation, like an official one, you're making a river go where you want it to, as opposed to you getting on the river, which is what we do in BDSM and following the way the river goes. Well, that actually leads really well into another topic that we want to discuss, um, which is pacing these type of scenes, right? Because that can be really tricky. Um, you know, trying to, I guess, not break your toys too soon, um, especially, you know, we were talking about earlier how different people, you can play with the same person and one day they can take play a lot harder than the next. 
Yeah, we actually had someone that we were playing with who um, she had been in the BDSM community, like played with the leather boys, like into hard play. Like she's leather she's what girls, huh? Leather girls, I no, think. Well, no, she played with the leather guys too, um, and leather girls. But she, I was saying boy with the B O I, not Y. Um, but she was really into these very heavy scenes. She had done all kinds of of abductions before and kidnappings and all this stuff. And we were just simply going to be doing kind of a takedown uh, sort of scene with her. And she hadn't played in a while. We got into it and we got maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes in. And it was like, I need this less. This is going to be a scene that is going to end very quickly if we keep it at this level. And so definitely even people who are very, very experienced in these things do these things all the time. You know, you can have just something that varies that day and can and change it. Absolutely. So making sure that you're you're pacing the bottom. And I also want to add pacing as a top uh, is an important thing that I am learning as I am getting older that sometimes you might want to take into perspective, like if I'm going to be doing X, Y, and Z, I might need to give, you know, the quote unquote bottom the a rest so that I can rest, right? Like that time that you're giving them a cigarette so that way they're cooling down, you're also resting, you know, your punching hand that you've been using for like 35 minutes straight too. Right. Oh, absolutely. And I think one thing that that Ken and I tend to do is, especially in really heavy scenes, we tend to be checker inners. So we kind of do a little timeout, like, how you feeling? How many fingers am I holding up? Da, da, da. And then you know, to just do that periodic check-in because with heavy scenes, you don't know. And like you said, things vary from day to day, especially people who menstruate. Sometimes if you're menstruating, you can't take pain. Sometimes you just, you know, you're you're not on your pain game as much as you usually are for whatever reason. So there's actually a couple things I do that you don't know about that <gasps> when we're doing abductions. Secret no, it's, top it's, it's, it's secret medical things. Okay. And what, it is, what it's doing <laughs> is I take their... Like, as I'm taking somebody's pulse, which you see me do sometimes, mm-hmm. what you don't know is I'm also taking the respirations. I'm seeing, you know, is their breathing increased? Is there any contraction or dilation to the eyes? There's a lot of, is there a skin change tone? Like, if it's somebody that, you know, is has, like, not enough tattoos or a right. skin Are they getting clammy like and weird or, yeah. So, you know, for, for the reasons that Cassie was talking about, I think leaving the BDSM interrogation scenes open so that you can change them as needed is so critically important. And this is one of the things like Sonny and I found somebody who could just, they could take all the pain. The one we did with Chrissy where she was taking pain all day long (gasps) and she was just not reacting. So what we did instead was we switched to two things, temperature control and edging her to the point where she was going to come and we wouldn't let her. And we did it over and over and over again, instead of simply beating her. That's what broke her was she was just like, why are you letting me have an orgasm? We could beat her until Sunday. And she's like, yeah, give me more. But denying her, that was the secret, you know, the secret to her or one scene we did recently. Um, again, we used the ice. Control. Yeah, yeah, we used the ice and, and we did an abduction interrogation scene. And we just had, you know, a person on each leg shoving the submissive's feet in a bucket of ice. And That's I, it. High Wire, if you're ever listening to this, you have crazy strong monkey legs. Like, I don't know what this, like, she's a tiny little girl and, like, just, it took how many? Five or six five people. Five or six people yeah. to hold her down. And, she and I thought I was going to get a black eye. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, but holding her feet in ice and in using temperature control or using capsicum cream, uh, which is awesome when you use that. It's like it's literally like hot red chili peppers that have been it's, put it's into a cream. It's the opposite of icy. It's hot. the opposite yeah. of icy hot, where it's just all hot. If you put that on any kind of a mucous membrane, they're going to curl up in the fetal position until it goes away, and there's nothing that'll take it off. It goes. I think it goes back to what you're saying about you know sometimes the mind fucking is the best part. Um, mm-hmm. One of the one of the scenes we did at Do actually we were uh, one of the ones we were talking about earlier. Um, oh yeah, so the beautiful lady that we did our our scene with, she had never played with women before. And although it was on her sheet as something that she was interested in having a woman involved in and everything, um, as far as her sexuality, she always identified as straight. So one of the things that really, I think, really kind of broke her down and got her really just totally fucked up was me saying to her um, at one point, I was like, I actually comforted her at one point, which was really funny because she asked for a comfort person. And we had a comfort person there. She asked for a female comfort person. So when everything started, I actually like got down on my knees and I was patting her head and I was like, oh, you know, I'm so, I'm so sorry. You know, you're going to make it, you're going to be fine. And the, 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 the two big mind fucks in the whole thing was then I, while I was doing that, I actually had a cock on and she didn't know it. And Um, I was like, oh, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And then I was like, oh, by the way, what is your sexual orientation? And she was like, I'm straight. And I shoved my cock down her throat. And, <laughs> and I was like, you don't look so fucking straight now. Um, and it was like this huge thing. And, and like, she reacted so well. We just fucked with it the rest of the scene because it was so hilarious. She reacted, but she reacted so strongly to it that we just kept fucking with it the rest of the scene because Cassie later was like fucking her with a strap on and we were like poking her that like, you know, she wasn't getting any real dick and she's turning into a lesbian. It was hilarious. Oh, that is funny. But I think seriously, you know, she was talking about after the scene, that was one of the biggest impacts of that entire scene was that kind of playing with her sexuality and she was like you know and she did like a whole bukkake thing and this whole rape thing and all this stuff that you would think oh my gosh all these things and the thing that really messed with her was that whole psychological aspect of her sexuality um which for me was just fantastic i had a ball with it um but it it really can be the psychological and not necessarily the physical Oh, yeah. And, you know, and that's why it's so important for dominants need to be good students of their submissives. And that's not even, you know, of course, that's during the scene, but that's leading up to the scene, you know, and any kind of relationship you've had with them, even if it's a friendship or whatever, to listen to those key little things like, what are the things that I can fuck with? Because that roller coaster ride that we're designing is built on a framework that's psychological. You know, the the physical might just be the tools you happen to use, but you're really taking someone on that psychological roller coaster ride. And you just have to find that in that thing that's really going to get to them. We were listening to somebody ne- negotiates, not the right word, but kind of talk a scene recently, like kind of talk to plan a scene, a couple friends of ours who we hadn't actually listened to do this before. And they were actually talking to our partner because they were thinking about potentially playing with her, playing yeah. with her at some point in the future. One of them wants revenge because our 
our partner got her in trouble at camp. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, she was asking you know, her, like, you know, like, what are your biggest fears? Like, what what do you have nightmares about when you go to sleep? Like, all these great questions. We were just there like, damn, this is really good. Like, we have to take some pages out of this book for questions. Like, they were really good. Yeah. Well, a couple of my favorite questions, because a lot of times you'll ask somebody like, you know, what's humiliating to you or what are you scared of? And they may not be able to think of things, but you ask like, what type of qualities do you value in a person? What are you proud of about yourself? Or, you know, what, you know, and it might even be something like, you know, oh, I really hate you. You know, I'm a stickler for, I don't know, always being on time. And I really beat myself up anytime I'm late. So maybe there's a way you can use that to psychologically, you know, belittle them if that's part of their negotiation. They like the humiliation, the belittling. But sometimes it's just the weirdest, oddest thing that doesn't seem obvious. Like the, uh, another example of that would be two things come to mind. One is using insects during play and you don't harm the insects, but you have like a bag full of um, like, like crickets, crickets. Yeah. And you put them down the person's face and like just, but that they never leave the Ziploc. They never get hurt. Uh, but using insects. The other one is somebody who uh, we had a couple of people that we were playing with. And one of them was like, so in love with her sister submissive that the worst thing that you could do to her was hit the other person. So it wasn't even hitting her. It was hitting another person. Right. Or that, that was like, like that's the thing that fucked her. Yeah. Right. Or there's, there's been examples where you force the submissive to hit, you know, submissive. Oh, yeah. That's not switchy. You oh, yeah. force them to hit somebody or whips. And they're like, no, I don't want it. You're like, do it. You know, it freaks them out. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I wanted to bring up, I know when you said uh, comfort person, that reminded me that, you know, most of us all know submissives need aftercare and aftercare is very individual. But in especially in these hard especially. scenes, tops often need aftercare, too. And that's something that people really tend to overlook and that, you know, they go give the submissive all the aftercare. And sometimes tops can go through some psychological weird drop after a heavy scene as well. Yeah, I actually had a scene that I did with Rigel. Um, wow, it's been quite a few years ago. And uh, you didn't me, need aftercare after that scene. That was me. You needed physical <laughs> aftercare, but I actually needed some emotional aftercare um, and actually had to reach out, not necessarily to him, but actually to a, a fellow top of mine friend. I'll give a shout out. Darian was awesome. Um, and uh, talk to him just so that way I could process a little bit of it. Because for me, I walked away with... Um, some surprise, which was one of the things that I wanted to talk about is sometimes you don't get the reactions that you expect. So typically like with Rigel, if we have a really hard, rough scene and I, I do all the naughties to him afterwards, it's like, Oh, cuddle me, love me, take a shower with me, you know, do all the cutesy stuff. And I like that. I like that kind of positive reinforcement back. And you, what, how, how was your reaction after that scene? It was like, fuck you, don't touch me, was basically what I got. For like a week. For a oh, week, wow. right? Okay. It was that It was that intense. And honestly, like right off the bat, I was like, whoa, what's going on, right? Like it was, it, was, it was a lot for me. But at first I was like, okay, well, he just needs some time. And then it was like 24 hours had gone by and I hadn't gotten any cuddles. And I was like, I'm such a bad person, right? Like I, I actually started to have some some form of regret, not regret for what I did, but for how it turned out later, um, which might sound really kind of 
kind of silly, but it, it, it was because I didn't regret the scene. The scene was fantastic, but I regretted it later. And I needed some form of aftercare. And for me, what the aftercare was is being able to talk to another top and sort of process it. And so, you know, it, they don't always go the way you plan them to. No. And I, th- I think that like, we're not used to talking about tops needing aftercare. So a lot of tops, they will st- like, just like you said, you know, every after scene is fine. And suddenly you stumble upon the scene and you feel really funky afterwards. And you're like, what? And as a top, nobody's told you about this. So you think like, it's just me. I'm being weird. You internalize it. You don't seek out someone to process it with. And that absolutely does happen to tops. And it's, you know, just the shame of like, why, why is this happening to me? Why do I feel this way? And we don't need to be ashamed about it. It happens sometimes. And it's also super important, you know, especially after this type of scene to check in with the bottom. We usually check in, like if we do this kind of scene, like any kind of consensual non-consent, we usually check in like, you know, immediately after the scene, but then like, you know, a day, a week and a month out as well, just to make sure if it's somebody that we don't talk to regularly anyways, you know, just to make sure everybody's doing okay. Yeah, it's really important to do, you know, the debrief afterwards. And, you know, like you said, not necessarily right away, um, maybe a little, but also check back in after people have had time to process because it helps you learn all sorts of stuff. And I think it's also really good for like reconnecting. So I guess we're going to get started on the speed round. Are you guys ready? Oh, God, I'm not good at speed, but I'll try. Okay. All right, brain, get get ready, brain. All right. Here's the here's the only question. Do we want to, this is our first time doing this with two people on the other end of the call. Do we want to have them alternate questions or do you want them both to answer? I was going to say alternate. Okay. I think that'll be easier. So you guys get to pick one to go first. I'll go first. All right. All right. And we're supposed to, the idea is 10 questions in like 60 seconds. So just yeah. first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Okay. okay. So Ken, what's something you're not very good at? Being calm. And Sunny, tell me something that is true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Oh, God. Uh, I like cream cheese when it's in cooked meals. (laughs) Ooh. Okay. Um, (laughs) Ken, best piece of relation, excuse me, best piece of relationship advice you've ever received? Um, I would have to say that's watch your partner masturbate so that you can replicate it, so you can see exactly what it is that they like. Sunny, what's three things you couldn't live without? Uh, Oxygen. Uh, (laughs) Probably, uh, I'm lazy, so like food, sleep, and Ken. Aw. Okay, Ken, what turns you on? Aquaman. That is not I have a, a lie. That's not a lie of a secret Aquaman fetish. I'm sorry. No, you don't get to change it. Now. You don't get you to change it. it. It's stuck. All right. So, Sunny, a book that you would recommend for our listeners, and it doesn't have to be sex ed related, but if it is, that's cool too. Oh, geez. What's the uh, 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 the the Jack Marin book? And I have it, and it's purple, and it's a cover, and I don't. Oh, it's in there, Ken. What? My mind is gone. I'll tell you later, and then you can put it in the show notes. <laughs> So right. her, her book she would recommend is in the show notes. What's it about? Yeah. Uh, it's a great BDSM book, and it talks about, like, uh, you know, psychological things behind fetishes and whatnot, and I think everybody Why don't should you read it. Why you there and get it? Because I'm hooked with headphones, and there's wires everywhere. And everything. I'm going to say Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. Jonathan Livingston Eagle. Okay, I'll go that route. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm actually going to ask this one to both of you. So what's your biggest fear? Oh, nuns. Dying. 
All right. So what's the most, and this is for Ken, the most adventurous thing you've ever done? It can be sexual or non-sexual. Well, my entire life has been pretty adventurous. Um, Probably backpacking across Ecuador. Awesome. All right, Sunny, what's your, like, movie or TV crush? Oh, I don't really watch movies or TV, and I don't really remember. What did I just... I know oh, Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman's my latest one. Edward Norton. Ed Norton. Yeah, Ed Norton, Jason Bateman, Lenny Kravitz, but he's not really an actor, but... Oh, Jason Momoa. See, I answered 8 million Aquaman. times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to ask about the Aquaman thing. All right, so I'm going to ask this to both of you. What's something you guys are currently working on that you want our listeners to know about? <gasps> the American, American Sex, Sex Podcast. Podcast. AmericanSexPodcast.com. And we'll have that in the show notes. Um, so, guys, where can people find you online? Uh, the easiest place to find us is you go to sunnymegatron.com and it links you to everything. We're all over, uh, social media. So whether it's Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, you name it, we're there. I'm at tag Sunny Megatron, S-U-N-N-Y Megatron. And Ken is almost everywhere. You want to say it? At Psy Chicken, P-S-Y Chicken. It's actually Psychic Ken, but like people can't see that. So they only see P-S-Y Chicken. I'm super glad that you guys spelled that out. Because I don't think people would have gotten that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a blast. Well, thank, thank you. you for we had on. a great time. <laughs> don't don't close out. Please don't close the tab. <laughs> yes, thank you, guys. That was fun. Thank you so much. That was a good time. Thank you. I feel like we could t- we could do a whole episode just on talking about psychologically fucking with people. Like I feel like that would be a whole episode in and of itself. Yeah, I didn't talk about dog food. Oh God, you didn't talk about dog food. We were we were getting so long on time. I was like, I'll wait. I won't do it. But yeah, story one- for another time. Well, you can tell them. Yeah, the story um, is she was watching her mother's dog for like a month and she Mindy. Mindy and she fucking hated Mindy. Like this dog, like pissed on everything, shit on everything, drove her crazy. Um, and aside for that, she also has a thing against like yucky food, like foods that have slimy textures, things like that. She's really against. And you, you have to admit, so Mindy was dubbed the hell beast. That's how much she hated this dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, it was Mindy was the hell beast. And so, I kind of, she, she had said that she wanted to do sort of like an interesting scene, something different. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm down. So I decided to make her a dog and do a dog scene with her. And what, what I did was I actually made a sign that said Mindy on it. And um, another one that said dog training. So when we actually started the scene at the, at the play space, I put up the signs. I told her to sit and I put on this. And it was funny because I actually started the scene before she even realized it because I was like, sit. And I put the signs up and she looked up and she saw the doggy training, but she didn't see Mindy yet. She only saw the doggy training. And I looked at her and I was like, Mindy, you've been a bad dog. And she was like, oh, fuck no. And she knew exactly where I was going with it. And what I did earlier in the evening, because she was hanging out with us, is I actually made her go with me to Walmart to pick up dog food for my dogs. Now, here's a little thing. My dog doesn't eat soft dog food, but I bought it. So it was already implanted in her head that this is like not quite right. What she told me after the scene, she was like, we, you know, were, we had just got done dating at the time too. So she knew all this. Stuff. Yeah. Like we, we were actually somewhat dating, like 
kind of seriously at the time. And this was afterwards, but she had been around enough to know my dogs. So when I went and picked up the soft dog food, there was already this like, what the fuck kind of thing in her mind that she just didn't pick up on at the time until we actually had the scene. So we went back to the house and I went inside and I gathered Legos because that was the other part of the scene was she actually had to be drugged through Legos. Legos are fucking torturous, by the way. Oh, and they are. Oh, my God. So we had her like rolling around in Legos and jumping through a hula hoop into the Legos. Like it was it was really awesome. And what I did was I actually took the dog food container and I took the dog food out of it. And what I put inside of it was actually leftover dinner that we had fed her the night before because she had spent the night and she was over the night before. And it was just rotisserie chicken, some mushed up carrots and some chicken broth. So it was the dinner that we had eaten. And we did this scene and I cracked open the other dog food container that hadn't been opened. And I had her smell it and look at it. And she was flipping out and she was like, no, no, no. And I finally started feeding her the not real dog food on your and, on my cock, by the way. I also was like face fucking her with the dog food. And she was freaking nice. out and that, and she was freaking out and, and, and going into this whole thing. And pretty much, I, but we had to stop when she, she like kind of started to, yeah, she started vomiting. Um, <laughs> she didn't get there. She, she was, she told me she had to come bit. up. Yeah. There was a little bit. Um, and then we were like, this is a dungeon with carpet. We probably should move on from this. Um, and, after the scene, she was like, that was the worst thing I've ever tasted. It was horrible. I can't believe you fed that to me. And she psychologically believed that we fed her dog food. Oh, that's amazing. That's a great bait and switch. Oh, she was sitting with me. Yeah, it was great because she was sitting with me because I was giving her aftercare. And she's sitting there. She's like, oh, my God, that dog food. It was the worst thing I ever tasted in my life. And blah, 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 blah. And I just let her go on this whole rant for like 10 minutes. If I was like. It, it, it was it was leftover chicken from last night. And she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but she was so. And then just burst into like a hysterical laughter. For like, yeah. I think we broke her for like 10 minutes after that. <laughs> but you just take a great big bite of it and start chewing down on it. Uh, it was hilarious. I, I actually chewed some of it later just to I've show got her. pictures of that somewhere. But yeah, she was she was seriously convinced that that. The do- that it was dog food. And, and like that was like the big psychological aspect to it was that. In her mind, it was dog food, even though it was the same dinner she had the night before. So it was, it was a lot of fun. That's hilarious. And also the whole Mindy thing also really fucked with her because she was just like, and afterwards it was funny because she actually did this whole write up on FetLife about how like now she has a more deeper respect for Mindy <laughs> um, after the scene because we were yelling all the things that she yelled at Mindy, you know, because you're talking about like observing people, like the things that she would say and she'd be and she would constantly be like, Mindy, you're a bad girl. You're not supposed to wet on the floor, Mindy. So I like mimicked the things that she said to the dog. So <laughs> oh, my goodness. Poor Mindy. Well, holy shit. So that was the longest episode that we have recorded to this point so far, but I think it was totally worth it. This is also the episode where we learn that you don't ever cut the recorder while you're still talking to people because so much of the interesting conversation happens after things get turned off. That's why the audio changed towards the end there during that uh, final recounting of the scene in case you didn't notice. I know there were just a ton of resources mentioned in here, including the Rough BS system and a link to Sonny and Ken's podcast and so much more. So if you want those resources, you can see the show notes at atouchofflavor.com forward slash 011. That's atouchofflavor.com forward slash 011. And everything's right there typed up for you. So check that out and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. 
Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF1. 